Hello, my name is Michael Spielman. I'm the founder and director of Abort 73, a web-based organization that is working to eliminate the violence of abortion through education and peer-to-peer engagement. This article is titled, 12 Rules for Protecting Life, an Antidote to Abortion. It was published on August 11, 2020. Since its release in 2018, millions of people, myself included, have read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. For the uninitiated, you might call it a book-length treatise of Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. Peterson, who has become a cultural phenomenon in his own right, puts it this way. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. That's rule six. And while I might question the inclusion of the word perfect, maybe that's the whole point. So long as there is work to be done in my own life, why waste precious time blaming my ills on someone or something else? Personal responsibility is at the heart of the Jordan Peterson empire, and though that empire has taken a hit recently as Peterson slowly recovers from a near-fatal dependence upon benzodiazepines, his basic message remains unscathed. Making your life better, Peterson posits, means adopting a lot of responsibility. And that takes more effort and care than living stupidly in pain and remaining arrogant, deceitful, and resentful. There's nothing particularly revolutionary in Peterson's message, but plenty of today's enlightened elite hate him for it. And while there isn't anything new in the shirking of personal responsibility, see Adam and Eve, bending over backwards to excuse and reward such behavior is a thoroughly modern development. In light of Peterson's emphasis on personal accountability, along with the title itself, I got to thinking about how the 12 rules for life might relate to abortion. Is abortion chaos or order? Those who sell abortion frame it as a reasonable choice, a loving choice. But I would counter that abortion is the most quintessentially irresponsible choice a person can make. Killing your own unborn child is the antithesis of responsibility. To do so, for fear of subjecting that child to a life of want, is like torching a field of saplings to spare them from pollutants. It's a solution that's qualitatively worse than the threat. That being said, Jordan Peterson plays things close to the vest when it comes to abortion. He rarely discusses it. And though he's on record saying that abortion is clearly wrong and believes everyone knows this, he equivocates when it comes to making abortion against the law. Should everything wrong be illegal, he wonders aloud. All that to say, the thought experiment I'm embarking on here, which will apply each of Peterson's rules to the condemnation of abortion, is entirely my own. It is not Peterson approved, nor is it the way I normally work, beginning with the conclusion and working backwards to make it fit. Some might argue that I could just as easily interpret Peterson's 12 rules the other way, as a defense for abortion, but I don't believe that to be true, and truth is paramount, rule 9. Were I to start from scratch and craft my own 12 rules for protecting life, these aren't the ones I'd have chosen. But that's what makes this exercise so interesting, the constraints. Nietzsche, who shows up frequently in Peterson's work, was no fan of Christianity, but he admired the rigor of Catholic theologians. Peterson notes the following in his lecture, Beyond Order, Another Twelve Rules for Life. One of the things Nietzsche believed was that the attempt over several thousands of years to force every phenomenon into a framework that could be explained by the axioms of Catholic belief disciplined the European mind. It made it capable of producing rigorous and coherent theories, independent of whether the theory was correct. It should go without saying that I believe in the correctness of the theories I'm putting forth. But even if you disagree with my interpretations, there is value in the process itself, independent of the conclusions that are reached. Peterson's 12 rules for life are not meant to be comprehensive. 
There's a randomness to them for the simple fact that they were culled from a list that originally included 42. It's also true that order is not the highest value Peterson has in view. Chaos may be an existential threat, but so is too much structure, which simply trades anarchy for tyranny. Peterson writes, Order is God the Father, the eternal judge, ledger keeper, and dispenser of rewards and punishments. Order is the peacetime army of policemen and soldiers. It's the political culture, the corporate environment, and the system. It's the they, and you know what they say. It's credit cards, classrooms, supermarket checkout lineups, turn-taking, traffic lights, and the familiar routes of daily commuters. Order, when pushed too far, when imbalanced, can also manifest itself destructively and terribly. It does so as the forced migration, the concentration camp, and the soul-devouring uniformity of the goose step. My hope in all this is twofold. First, I want to vet the validity of Peterson's rules against the validity of my own opposition to abortion. If both are valid, then they should be able to fit together in perfect harmony. Second, since Jordan Peterson's age-old ideas have already transformed the lives of countless persons around the globe, I'd like to turn the collective gaze of those persons to an issue which Peterson seems reluctant to visit himself, at least publicly. In my mind, the practical ramifications of 12 Rules for Life must be given as wide an application as possible, and that certainly includes abortion. So without any further ado, here are the 12 Rules for Protecting Life, as they apply to therapeutic abortion. Rule number one, stand up straight with your shoulders back. The way you carry yourself matters tremendously. When you display more courage and confidence than you actually feel, you wind up becoming a more courageous and confident person, which yields exceedingly better results. This positive feedback loop can literally transform your brain. But the inverse is also true. When you act cowardly or ignobly, your brain concludes that you must be a coward and adjust itself accordingly. At the psychological level, abortion is a declaration of fear, and perhaps shame. When you have one, you unconsciously proclaim to yourself that you are a person who lacks competence and courage. When you recommend abortion to a pregnant woman, you thereby infer that she is not capable of overcoming difficult life challenges. Birth, by contrast, is a declaration of courage and hope. Consider the remarks of this woman from Massachusetts, who shared her birth story with Abort 73. I found out I was pregnant when I was 19. I was living over a thousand miles away from any friends and family in an apartment with an abusive boyfriend who threw me out when he heard the news. I had only attended college for a year and had no money, no job, and nowhere to turn. My daughter turns 15 tomorrow. She's a gifted student, a creative writer, and a brilliant artist. Within a few short years after her birth, I finished college, got a graduate degree, married a wonderful man, and bought a house. The people who tell you that having a baby destroys your future are lying. My life is better than I could have ever imagined all those years ago, and my daughter's life is amazing and irreplaceable. Being her mom led me out of a place of such darkness and selfishness. I am grateful that I became a mother at a young age, because it forced me to become a better person. If this young college co-ed had had an abortion, as virtually everyone around her recommended, there would have been no compelling pressure for her to become a better person. That's the irony of unintended consequences, and it's illustrated quite painfully in this abortion story. Everything was supposed to go back to normal after the abortion. No one told me I would have nightmares of burning in hell, waking in a panic. No one told me I would cringe at the sight of a newborn baby for the next year or two. No one told me I would come to hate myself for what I had done. And no one told me I'd turn to drugs and alcohol to drown out the regret and sorrow. No one told me I'd go from one abusive relationship to the next. 
Maybe that's what I thought I deserved. No one told me that one day would affect the rest of my life. The forces of tyranny expand inexorably to fill the space made available for their existence. Jordan Peterson wrote that in the first chapter of Twelve Rules for Life, and it's worth considering in the context of abortion. I think Jesus expresses the same basic sentiment in Matthew 12, 43-45, when he warns that an unoccupied house, or life, is an open invitation to evil. For anyone struggling to make something of themselves or to finally adopt a greater measure of personal responsibility, being backed into a corner isn't such a bad thing. In fact, it might be the best thing. And this is precisely where an unwanted pregnancy puts you. You can either take responsibility and fight your way out, or you can kill your unborn baby. Those are the only choices. When you have an abortion, you essentially clear the field so that all of your bad habits and self-destructive behavior can continue and multiply, unabated. But what if you didn't allow yourself to take the easy way out? Would you find the strength to do what needs to be done? Would you discover that necessity is indeed the mother of invention? You almost certainly would. Abortion accommodates the continuation of puerile habits. Parenting does not. Parenting forces the adoption of responsibility, which is good for the child and profoundly good for the parent. Rule number two. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Human beings, it turns out, are far more likely to fill prescriptions for those in their care, even pets, than they are to fill prescriptions for themselves. Why is that, do you think? And is it a bad thing? Failing to sufficiently care for yourself is a bad thing, Peterson argues, though he's hardly surprised by it. Each of us has a front-row seat to our own failings, which gives us plenty of fuel for self-loathing. When it comes to unhealthy behavior, we seem to give ourselves a much longer leash than we're willing to give those we're responsible for. I see this quite clearly in the allowances I give myself that I don't give my children, specifically in the realm of diet and entertainment. It doesn't affect me in the same way it affects them, I rationalize, and maybe that's true. Or maybe it's just a convenient lie that I tell myself. Either way, Peterson believes we are all morally bound to treat ourselves as an object of intrinsic worth. He writes, You do not simply belong to yourself. You are not simply your own possession to torture and mistreat. This is partly because your being is inexorably tied up with that of others, and your mistreatment of yourself can have catastrophic consequences for others. But metaphorically speaking, there is also this. You have a spark of the divine in you, which belongs not to you, but to God. With echoes of 1 Corinthians 6.19, Peterson suggests that caring for yourself is not an expression of narcissism, but is rather a recognition of the duty you owe the cosmos. Though some might argue that the admonition to better care for yourself could be a justification for abortion, that would be a shallow and misguided assessment. Consider again the two women we've already heard from. While it's fair to say that caring for yourself is a precursor to caring for others, it doesn't follow that caring for yourself might necessitate the killing of an unborn child. Abort 73 has published hundreds of abortion testimonies, all of which emphatically indicate that abortion is not self-care. You wouldn't recommend that someone that you love have an abortion. Jordan Peterson made that statement during the Q&A portion of one of his biblical lectures. Since lots of people do recommend abortion to people they ostensibly love, I think the statement needs some clarification. What he means, I believe, is that no one recommends abortion for its own sake. Having an abortion isn't on anyone's bucket list unless they're severely masochistic, and no sane parent dreams that their little girl will someday get to have a DNC. At best, abortion is a necessary evil. At worst, there is nothing necessary about it. It is merely evil. No matter which view more closely matches your own, the material point is this. Abortion is not something you would wish upon a woman you love. 
Remarkably, a number of the post-abortion women we've heard from go even further. I wouldn't wish this pain on my worst enemy. I wouldn't wish the pain I'm feeling on my worst enemy. I can't say that I'm anti-abortion, but I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. I learned the hard way, and I would never wish this type of pain on even my worst enemy. The admonition to treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping precludes abortion on two fronts. First, it eliminates many of the lifestyle choices that are predictors of abortion. The National Abortion Federation reports that women who have abortions are more likely to smoke and more likely to be exposed to sexually transmitted infections because they've had a greater number of sexual partners in an earlier age at first sex. People who care for themselves as beings of intrinsic worth don't smoke cigarettes, they don't start having sex in adolescence, and they don't sleep with a wide range of partners. If you doubt that, just put your parenting hat on for a moment and consider your real or imagined teenage daughter. Do you want her smoking? Do you want her having casual sex with a wide range of partners? If this is not the kind of risky behavior you would endorse for the daughter in your care, then it's not the kind of behavior you should be embracing yourself. The second way that self-care precludes abortion is more direct and difficult. That's because women who undervalue their intrinsic worth are far more likely to sleep with the wrong guy and far more likely to find themselves pregnant and alone. Who is the wrong guy? In large measure, it's the guy you're not married to. I realize that sounds terribly parochial, but consider this. In the United States, 84% of abortions are performed on unmarried women, and women who live with the man they're not married to are two and a half times more likely to have an abortion than women at large. Abortion is the price we pay for unmarried sex, and the cost is beyond measure. This came to Abort 73 from a 26-year-old woman in Ohio. I had an abortion almost a week ago. The day following the procedure, I attempted suicide. I was hospitalized and am now starting counseling to help me cope. Regrets can't even describe how I feel. Why should I deserve to live? I hate myself. I murdered my poor innocent baby. I'll never forgive myself, nor do I deserve to be forgiven. When a woman finds herself in a crisis pregnancy, she is at a crossroads. She can either have an abortion, which is almost always a manifestation of self-loathing, or she can treat herself as someone worth caring for. Abortion is the natural continuation of self-destructive behavior, as evidenced by the fact that women who have abortions experience a higher rate of violent death, including accidents, homicide, and suicide, than those who deliver. Why is that? Because women who don't abort hold their own lives in high enough regard. But one noble, righteous, and courageous choice can change your trajectory forever. The answer isn't, love yourself no matter how you act. That's not really possible. The answer is, do things that make it easier to love and care for yourself. If abortion is not something to be wished upon the people you love, or even upon the people you hate, then why would you even consider it for yourself? Rule number three, make friends with people who want the best for you. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about friendship. So does Jordan Peterson. If you're going to take responsibility for your own life, Peterson told one of his Canadian audiences, then one thing you do is you surround yourself with people who are unhappy when you do things for yourself that aren't good. That's something worth thinking about. There's a category of things you can do for yourself that are not good. The question to ask then is this. Do your friends love you enough to get upset when you do one of those things? Or do they just cheer you along towards any end? Love is a tricky thing, you see, and it bears little resemblance to its pop culture depiction. Love is discerning. 
Love is judgmental. Love is intolerant. When it sees the object of its affection heading for a cliff, be it literal or metaphorical, it intervenes. Love may bear all things and hope all things, but love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices only in what is true. 1 Corinthians 13 A true friend loves at all times. That means they don't desert you in a time of trial, but it also means that they don't affirm the behavior that may have led to the trial in the first place. Before you help someone, Peterson writes, you should find out why that person is in trouble. You shouldn't merely assume that he or she is a noble victim of unjust circumstances and exploitation. It's the most unlikely explanation, not the most probable. When you strip someone of their moral agency by denying their guilt or complicity, you render them incapable of actually making their life better. That is not helpful. The reason it can be difficult to find a good friend is that being a bad friend is so much easier. It's the pathway of least resistance. Bad friends can come and go. Bad friends can laugh at your calamity and envy your success. Bad friends can live for the moment and use you for their own ends. Bad friends can mock your virtue and celebrate your folly. Bad friends can do all this because they don't care about you for your own sake. They'll say whatever needs to be said to avoid conflict and keep the train rolling but they have little concern where the train winds up, even if it derails entirely. The woman from Massachusetts whose story we heard in Rule 1 was surrounded by friends who pressured her to abort, but she had one friend who assured her she was capable of doing the right thing. That one friend carried the day by refusing to capitulate to convention or expedience. Abortion, more than anything else I can think of, is an example of doing something for yourself that is not good. What is needed most emphatically during a crisis pregnancy is a friend who will take you to task for pursuing a course of action that is ignoble and unbecoming. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, Proverbs tells us, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 14 offers the following warnings and promises. Think about them in the context of abortion. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. In the fear of the Lord one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. A good friend values purity of heart. Bad friends value ease and expedience, as evidenced by the testimony below from a 20-year-old Michigan woman. My boyfriend told me we couldn't support a baby. There was no way. And my friend told me the same thing. They both told me I should get an abortion. I love kids. All I ever wanted my whole life was to be a mommy. I've always been extremely against abortion, so I couldn't believe I was even considering it. In my mind, everything would work out for itself, and I would be able to figure it out. But nobody else thought that. I saw my boyfriend a few days after the abortion, and he was all happy and already wanted to start having sex again. All I wanted was my baby back. Eventually, he broke up with me because he said I depressed him and because I didn't enjoy having sex anymore. I've been so alone in this. I was supposed to protect my baby but I just let everyone talk me into getting rid of my sweet, innocent baby. Good friends make you a better version of yourself. Bad friends make you worse. And there are all sorts of ways they can do this. It might be through moral corruption, but it can also be through isolation, manipulation, and guilt. 
Well-meaning souls often hang on to bad friends for too long on the conviction that they can help them. That is almost never the case. You won't help them, but they will hurt you. Jordan Peterson warns. Christ himself, you might object, befriended tax collectors and prostitutes. How dare I cast aspersions on the motives of those who are trying to help. But Christ was the archetypal perfect man, and you're you. How do you know that your attempts to pull someone up won't instead bring them, or you, further down? Imagine the case of someone supervising an exceptional team of workers, all of them striving towards a collectively held goal. Imagine them hardworking, brilliant, creative, and unified. But the person supervising is also responsible for someone troubled, who is performing poorly, elsewhere. In a fit of inspiration, the well-meaning manager moves the problematic person into the midst of his stellar team, hoping to improve him by example. What happens? And the psychological literature is clear on this point. Does the errant interloper immediately straighten up and fly right? No. Instead, the entire team degenerates. The same thing happens when well-meaning counselors place a delinquent teen among comparatively civilized peers. The delinquency spreads, not the stability. Down is a lot easier than up. One quality friend can mitigate a myriad of evils, but better still is a host of quality friends. No one is perfect after all. Even a wise friend may occasionally lead you astray. A multitude of wise friends probably won't. Surround yourself, Peterson recommends, and Solomon does too. In an abundance of wise counselors, there is safety and victory. If you make friends with people who truly want the best for you, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, your likelihood of winding up in a crisis pregnancy decreases significantly, and your likelihood of having an abortion all but vanishes. Friends don't let friends kill their unborn children. Rule number four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Comparing yourself to other people has never been easier, but it's extremely misleading. That's because we're not really comparing ourselves to other people. We're comparing ourselves to their carefully curated personas. Who someone is and who someone appears to be, particularly on social media, are two entirely different things. We would do well to remember that. The actual problem, of course, runs deeper. Modern technology simply magnifies it. The reason it's not helpful to compare yourself to other people is because there is literally no one else in the world who can serve as your proxy. Jordan Peterson puts it this way. Your life isn't like anyone else's life. When you see someone who's doing better than you, you're only seeing one dimension at one slice of time, so it's not reasonable. You don't have the whole picture, and so you get down on yourself and take the spirit out of yourself, and you get bitter and resentful. There's nothing good about that. Peterson's point is not that you should simply accept yourself as you are. That's antithetical to everything he believes. You need to improve, Peterson insists, but it's not because you're worse than other people. It's because you're not everything you should be. Who, then, should you be measuring yourself up against? Well, that's easy. The only person you can reasonably compare yourself to is you, because you share the same talents and resources, the same successes and failures, the same upbringing, the same biological predispositions, the same education, and the same position in life. There is always something you can do today that will make you slightly better the next day. Always. That's who you're competing against. The person you were yesterday. Here's how it plays out in the context of abortion. If you are pregnant, or your wife is pregnant, or your girlfriend is pregnant, or a girl you had sex with is pregnant by you, then you are the parent of an unborn child. Nothing can change that. Your future self will either be the parent of a living child or the parent of a dead child. 
So the question is, will ending the life of your tiny unborn baby make you a better person or a worse person? Will abortion ennoble your inner self or cripple it? Will abortion make you feel proud of yourself or ashamed? Though these questions largely answer themselves, these post-abortion testimonies will help clarify the matter further. My boyfriend and I broke up within a couple months of the abortion, but I carried the guilt and shame with me for decades. I never told anyone about my abortion, because it is my greatest shame, my greatest regret, and the biggest mistake of my life. I had an abortion two years ago. Now I'm filled with complete shame and guilt. Sometimes I just feel like giving up completely. My shame kept me silent. My heartbreak spilled out and threatened to capsize me any time I even thought about sharing this horrific secret. I willingly went through the abortion, and when I awoke, a major piece of me died along with my baby. I slept for the rest of the day, broken, ashamed, and guilty. I walked out of that clinic with the guilt that would reside in me forever, with no one to tell, and the shame to never speak about what happens behind those clinic doors. I have rarely met a woman who hasn't been touched by abortion in some way. I had often listened to other stories of abortion over the years, swallowed deep, and pretended I didn't know such hurt and shame. I had really, truly just killed my baby. All I wanted and wished for was to undo what I had just done, to take it all back and have a do-over. Impossible. This was my choice, and now I have to live with it. I was so terrified, ashamed, and angry. I felt there was no hope for me. I am still not ready to make my abortion story public, largely because my family and husband, he was my boyfriend at the time of the abortions, are not ready. Still so much shame. I keep telling them the only way to annihilate the shame is to speak truth and be vulnerable. Abortion is not freedom. In the immediate aftermath of my abortion, I concentrated on getting married and having a replacement baby. I did everything I could to forget about what had happened, to stomp down my feelings of total worthlessness, shame, and guilt. Over 30 years of my life, I have lived with post-traumatic stress, went through two divorces, and nearly self-destructed. The decision I made to have an abortion still haunts me at age 59. I can't believe it's a choice I made, and yet I did. The older I got, the more appalled I was with myself for this decision. I would do anything to go back and tell my younger self to have that baby. I wish I could tell my younger self that the guilt, shame, and pain that I would carry for the rest of my life was going to be crippling at times. I would do anything to go back and tell my younger self to have that baby. That's a common refrain in the abortion stories we receive. But it's not possible. We can't go back and warn our past selves to choose a different course, which is why Rule 4 is so important. Each of us has a past, a present, and a future. The only way to make our future self a better person than our past self is to make good and noble choices in the present. C.S. Lewis explains it this way, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. Peterson and Lewis both emphasize the profound potential of incremental change over time, but it's also true that we are sometimes presented with choices whose ramifications far exceed the everyday. These are the red-letter days, so to speak, and the choices we make on these days have a disproportionate influence on the rest of our lives. The discovery of pregnancy marks just such a day, and though abortion posits itself as a means of preserving the status quo, 
That ship has already sailed. There's no going back. The only question is whether you will act in harmony with God and creation or go to war with being itself. Jordan Peterson observes the following. When you decide to act as if existence might be justified by its goodness, if only you behave properly, then it is that decision, that declaration of existential faith that allows you to overcome nihilism and resentment and arrogance. It is that declaration of faith that keeps hatred of being with all its attendant evils at bay. And as for such faith, it is not at all the will to believe things that you know perfectly well to be false. Faith is not the childish belief in magic. That is ignorance or even willful blindness. It is instead the realization that the tragic irrationalities of life must be counterbalanced by an equally irrational commitment to the essential goodness of being. No one ever says, I was scared, so I had a baby. It always runs the other way. I was scared, so I had an abortion. Abortion is rooted in fear. Having one will not make you a better person, but will saddle your future self with the burden of unspeakable weight, whether you realize it or not. Abort 73's most recent abortion story came from a California woman who didn't start regretting her abortion for almost a decade. Many people will say that abortion is no big deal, she writes, but here I am ten years later and I'm still affected by it. It's like this dirty, dark secret that will never, ever go away. If you want to be better tomorrow than you were yesterday, don't allow someone to kill your innocent, helpless, and utterly dependent child. Rule number five. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. On the surface, this rule may sound pompous and self-serving, the kind of thing you'd expect from not-to-be-bothered parents who won't deign to be inconvenienced by their kids. But that isn't it at all. This principle is not primarily for the benefit of parents. It's for the safety and well-being of children. Jordan Peterson is a big fan of kids, but he's been around enough of them to know that they're not the innocent cherubs society makes them out to be. Young children need no instruction when it comes to selfishness and savagery. Peterson writes, Imagine a toddler repeatedly striking his mother in the face. Why would he do such a thing? It's a stupid question. It's unacceptably naive. The answer is obvious. To dominate his mother. To see if he can get away with it. Violence, after all, is no mystery. Violence is the default. It's easy. It's peace that is difficult, learned, inculcated, earned. The reason you shouldn't allow your children to behave in ways that cause you to dislike or even hate them is because doing so places them in very real danger. If you doubt that, then you've never spent any time with a relentlessly aggravating child and seen how quickly your own behavior can become cruel and vindictive in response. Peterson points out that, statistically speaking, two-year-old children are the most violent people in the world. They kick, hit, and bite, and they steal the properties of others. Fortunately, they're also small and impotent. Parents are not. When parents lash out in anger, they can do actual damage, which is why it's so important to correct unruly children before they drive you past the breaking point. And even if you can tolerate boorish behavior in your child, the rest of the world most certainly will not. Unfortunately, disciplining your children demands far more time, energy, and resolve than the alternative, at least in the short run. Appeasement is easy. Engaging in a battle of wills takes backbone. I say that as a parent who has failed frequently on this front, yielding too quickly to keep the peace. Thankfully, my wife is a courageous and faithful woman. In fact, I had her read Peterson's entire, rather lengthy, articulation of this rule because it so encapsulates the character and commitment I've seen in her for the past 18 years. She loves our children fiercely, and she crosses them regularly. Someday they'll thank her for it. Why? 
because correction provides children with a lifetime of protection and provision. Peterson puts it this way, Parents who refuse to adopt the responsibility for disciplining their children think they can just opt out of the conflict necessary for proper child-rearing. They avoid being the bad guy in the short term, but they do not at all rescue or protect their children from fear and pain. Quite the contrary. The judgmental and uncaring broader social world will mete out conflict and punishment far greater than that which would have been delivered by an awake parent. You can discipline your children, or you can turn that responsibility over to the harsh, uncaring, judgmental world, and the motivation for the latter decision should never be confused with love. Jordan Peterson believes that the best way to protect children from coming to a bad end is to teach them how to behave properly. But how does that relate to abortion? I see two connections. First, the assumption that underlies Peterson's reasoning is that it is fundamentally wrong to harm a child. That has huge implications with regard to abortion. If it's wrong for parents to neglect disciplining their children for the harm that might befall them as a result, then it is certainly wrong for parents to intentionally harm them to death. Some will complain that this is an unfair comparison, since it involves born children and unborn children. But Peterson notes earlier in Twelve Rules just how arbitrary this distinction is. Human babies, compared to other mammals of the same size, are born more than a year early. The essentially fetal baby, as Peterson puts it, is almost completely dependent on his mother for everything during that first year. This creates a real problem for those who justify abortion because of the fetus' utter dependence upon the mother, unless they're going to defend infanticide too. The second connection is this. Abortion itself is one of the cultural costs of allowing selfish antisocial behavior to go unchecked. When children behave badly, the consequences are relatively minor. When teenagers and young adults do the same, the carnage increases exponentially. This is especially true in the realm of sex. Consider again that almost 90% of American abortions are performed on unmarried women. In times past, fornication was publicly scorned. Then we became more enlightened. In times past, a man was expected to marry a girl if he got her pregnant. Now we expect the girl to have an abortion. Does that really make for a better world? Jordan Peterson doesn't think so. The old answer was get married, and it's an answer people should still listen to. He goes on to observe the following. I don't think we've had an intelligent conversation about sexual morality in our culture probably since the invention of the birth control pill, so that's about 50 years. In the immediate aftermath of the birth control pill, there was the idea that sex could now be decontextualized. It could occur in the absence of permanent relationship, let's say, and that would be an okay thing, and that it could also be something that could be done casually for recreation and without guilt. I don't think any of those things are true. I don't think there's any evidence that they're true. I think they're dangerous delusions. You can't reduce sexuality to casual pleasure without reducing the person that you're having sex with to nothing but the provider of casual pleasure. Sex in the modern world has become exceedingly self-serving. We might even call it childish. In separating sex from commitment and childbirth, we've made it all pretend and make-believe. It's like kids playing house. There is little, if any, concern for the needs and well-being of the other person. They are merely a means to an end, a provider of casual pleasure. When grown-up problems arise, the game suddenly ends until a new partner can be found. Perennial immaturity is one of the very real-world ramifications of this unnatural compartmentalization of sex. Jordan Peterson explains it like this. There are three things you don't know until you have a baby. The one is that you didn't grow up yet, because you don't actually grow up until someone is more important than you. You can't. So people think they grow up if they don't have children, but they don't. They just think they do. 
There's this pristine element to the potential relationship between parents and children that's terribly devalued in our society. It's almost as if we're willfully blind to it. I think it's an absolute catastrophe because there's very little in life that can compare to establishing a proper relationship with a child. Peterson continues the same theme in a separate lecture. When people are young, and I think this is particularly true in the modern world, they seem to often regard the possibility of having a child as an impediment to their lifestyle. And in some way I suppose that's true. But having a child in your life is actually something that's remarkable, almost beyond belief. You can have a relationship with a child that is better than any relationship you've ever had with anyone in your life, if you're careful and if you're fortunate. In a tragic twist of irony, our cultural efforts to eliminate the heavy-handed parenting of yore have resulted in far worse outcomes for the children we're ostensibly trying to protect. Parents, too. We won't spank kids or discipline them in meaningful ways, but we will kill them in the womb. Under the guise of compassion, we've exchanged the lesser violence for the greater. We've exchanged corporal punishment for abortion. We've exchanged the fear of God for the sociopathic fear of nothing. To hold the no-excuse-for-physical-punishment theory, Peterson argues, is also to assume that the word no can be effectively uttered to another person in the absence of the threat of punishment. It can't. What no means in the final analysis is always, if you continue to do that, something you do not like will happen to you. Otherwise, it means nothing. Parents who are unable or unwilling to say no to their children set them up for a lifetime of unnecessary anguish. In the process, they leave them uniquely vulnerable to the dual threats of crisis pregnancy and abortion. When children grow up without having to sufficiently reckon with the demands of that unfathomably crucial two-letter word, is it any wonder that they become adults who are unable to utter it when it counts the most? Abortion does not happen in a vacuum. It's performed with a vacuum, at least the surgical variety, but it is the end result of a million prior compromises and failures. If parents are the arbiters of society, as Peterson maintains, they must learn to tolerate the momentary anger or even hatred directed towards them by their children. If they don't, it might literally cost them the lives of their grandchildren. Sadly, it is often parents who pressure their minor daughter to abort. Having failed to provide the parental boundaries that could have protected her, they rush in to fix the problem by again taking the easy way out, no matter how devastating the impact to their progeny. Nobody likes abortion in the truest sense. Yes, people make use of it and perfidiously argue its utility, but only the ignorant or deranged like abortion for its own sake. So if you're going to limit your children to only the behavior you like, doesn't that forswear abortion entirely, which nobody in their rational mind does like? Are there any sane parents in all the world who dream of someday having an abortionist for a son or daughter? There are no guarantees when it comes to parenting, but when you put in the work by not letting your kids get away with things that make you dislike them, you make the world a less welcoming place for abortion. If all parents did that, abortion would all but disappear. Rule number six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. I suppose the first question to ask is this. Is publicly opposing abortion a means of criticizing the world? And if it is, does that explain Jordan Peterson's reluctance to broach the subject? To answer the initial question, we must look at the way Peterson talks about injustice in the broader context. Does he give any indication that being publicly critical of something amounts to an unjust criticism of the world? If not, to what extent does the reasonableness of the complaint depend upon the order of the complainer's own house? 
Peterson's advice is to consult your resentment, which he calls a revelatory emotion. He writes, Resentment always means one of two things. Either the resentful person is immature, in which case he or she should shut up, quit whining, and get on with it, or there is tyranny afoot, in which case the person subjugated has a moral obligation to speak up. In other words, giving vent to every resentment is childish and unnecessary, but never giving vent to resentment might be even worse. Jordan Peterson's own entrance into the public spotlight came amidst just such a venting, when he publicly opposed Canada's Bill C-16 and refused to be compelled to use genderless pronouns in the classroom. To some, the issue of preferred gender pronouns may seem obscure and unimportant, but forced speech is one of Peterson's lines in the sand. I won't mouth the words of ideologues, Peterson explained, because when you do that, you become a puppet of their ideology. In both theory and practice, Jordan Peterson is an advocate for standing up to tyranny, even and perhaps especially the small ones. How could so many ordinary, decent people do the terrible things that define the Nazi and communist states? They had simply gotten in the habit of refusing to say no. They'd tolerated a hundred lesser evils, and by the time no seriously needed to be said, there was no one left capable of saying it. Peterson's argument in Rule 6 is not that you shouldn't stand against injustice. His point is that you shouldn't flippantly blame outside forces for problems that you may well be causing yourself. Fix what you can fix. Don't be arrogant in your knowledge. Strive for humility, because totalitarian pride manifests itself in intolerance, oppression, torture, and death. Become aware of your own insufficiency, your cowardice, malevolence, resentment, and hatred, Consider the murderousness of your own spirit before you dare accuse others and before you attempt to repair the fabric of the world. Maybe it's not the world that's at fault. Maybe it's you. Chris Christofferson wrote a song a half decade before I was born that I've grown rather fond of. It's called To Beat the Devil, inspired by Johnny Cash. It tells the story of a poor and idealistic singer who's trying to convince people that the things they complain about are things they could be changing. Sound familiar? The devil, in the form of an old man, tells the singer he's on a fool's errand. People would rather complain than take responsibility. But the singer walks away undaunted, refusing to believe that his message is a waste of time. It's the same message Jesus espoused in the Beatitudes. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Before you complain or criticize, make sure that the problem is not somehow tied to your own behavior— do an exhaustive examination of your own life to see if there's anything you can change to make things better. For those whose hearts are grieved by the violence and injustice of abortion, I would argue that part of putting your house in order entails doing something in the service of abortion-vulnerable women and children. For parents facing a crisis pregnancy, assuming it wasn't brought about by violent assault, the pregnancy itself is evidence that your house is not in order. Pregnancy, after all, is a normal outcome of a specific behavioral choice. So if pregnancy creates an immediate crisis, it's fair to say you had no business having sex. When crisis pregnancy reveals that someone's house is not in order, the question then becomes what to do about it. What is the pathway to putting it in order? Peterson recommends the following. Stop acting in that particular despicable manner. Stop saying those things that make you weak and ashamed. Say only those things that make you strong. Do only those things that you could speak of with honor. One of the reasons that putting your house in order precludes abortion is because abortion is not something you can speak of with honor. Some people try to, but they are bending reality to fit a falsehood. It doesn't work. The only way to maintain the fiction is to forfeit your soul. 
You either learn to tolerate the lies or you become someone who believes the lies. It's hard to say which is worse. When faced with a crisis pregnancy, the only pathway towards putting your house in order is to protect the life and future of your child. But that is just the beginning. Deciding against abortion eliminates the most immediate threat to your child's life. But all of the underlying problems remain. Carrying to term doesn't make them magically disappear, not by a long shot. This, I believe, is why Jordan Peterson is so reluctant to enter the public abortion debate. Quoting Leonard Cohen, he says, There's no decent place to stand in a massacre. And what Cohen meant by that, Peterson explains, is that sometimes there is no good decision left. No matter what you do, it's wrong. Those who oppose abortion must be willing to grant that there's an element of truth to Peterson's assessment. It's wrong to have an abortion, but it's also wrong to have a baby you can't take care of. Both result from what Peterson calls sexual relationships that are bent and warped and demented out of shape. The eternal debate about abortion, he continues, is the surface manifestation of a much deeper problem. I agree with that completely. But the reason I'm willing to stake my claim unequivocally on the anti-abortion side of the equation is because having an abortion and having a baby out of wedlock are not moral equivalents. Both are wrong, but they're not wrong in the same way. One should be against the law. The other must not be against the law. One is permanent and fatal. The other can be overcome by putting one's house in order. For the sake of the child, marriage or adoption should be seriously considered. At the very least, significant lifestyle changes must be made. To summarize, crisis pregnancy is evidence of an out-of-order life. So too is abortion. In fact, abortion is the opposite of putting your house in order. Abortion is the futile attempt to maintain the status quo at any cost, even the cost of violently ending the life of an innocent and helpless human being. To try and maintain the status quo by having an abortion is to simply maintain disorder and chaos. Your individual house will never be put to right through abortion, and our collective house will never be in order so long as it's legal to kill the most innocent and helpless members of the human community. As Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Rule number seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Of all Jordan Peterson's rules for life, I would call this one the most explicitly anti-abortion. Abortion, after all, is almost always carried out in service to expedience, while opposition to abortion stems from the conviction that every human life is meaningful and worth protecting. Peterson himself calls Rules 7 and 8 the most central of the Twelve. It's not hard to see why. They are the broadest and most far-reaching. Peterson writes, Expedience. That's hiding all the skeletons in the closet. That's covering the blood you just spilled with the carpet. That's avoiding responsibility. It's cowardly and shallow and wrong. It's wrong because mere expedience multiplied by many repetitions produces the character of a demon. Virtually all of the arguments for abortion are pragmatic in nature, while those against are almost entirely principled. If you doubt that, start lining them up. Then consider what is gained by supporting abortion and what is gained by opposing it. Abortion is a business. Opposing abortion is not. Abortion generates a profit. Opposing abortion does not. And while it's true that some people do make money in the anti-abortion sector, I'm one of them, I don't know anyone who's growing rich opposing abortion. More to the point, the money we make is money we must first painstakingly raise. It's not that there's anything wrong with making money, not by a long shot, 
but in a highly contentious moral debate, monetary motivation is worth considering. If one position is financially lucrative and one is emphatically not, that reveals something. At the very least, those who perform abortions and those who sell abortions and those who lobby for abortion rights might be in it for the money. That's not even a possibility for people on the other side. It's frequently asserted that those who oppose abortion are just trying to control women. It's an accusation so detached from reality that it would be laughable were it not so insidious. Most abortionists are men. Most pregnancy care center directors are women. Let that sink in. The cultural narrative is backwards. Abortion has given far more relational leverage to men than women, since the cost of getting a girl pregnant is now exponentially less than it was before. Some men demand abortion. Others ostensibly leave it up to the woman, believing that to be the honorable play. It's hard to say which is more cruel. Historic feminism, which vehemently opposed abortion, has given way to an ideology that seems devoted to the systematic defeminization of women. Abortion doesn't celebrate femininity or motherhood. In some measure, it attempts to make women into men by eliminating their most quintessentially female distinction. I'm not denying the fact that there are countless women in the world who champion the right to abortion and count it a good thing, but these women are by no means objective. Here again, since abortion offers a tangible benefit to those who embrace it, the elimination of pregnancy through violence, there is a tremendous conflict of interest. Abortion cannot be justified behind a veil of ignorance. Peterson notes the following in a 2018 Saskatchewan lecture. One of the truths that psychologists have uncovered is that you tend to justify what you do, and that's something to be very wary of, because perhaps you have your ethical qualms about doing something, but you do it two or three dozen times, and you can be absolutely certain that as a consequence of doing it that many number of times, that you will now formulate a story that you will tell yourself and other people, and will also come to believe about why doing that is not only okay, but good. The only thing abortion has going for it is expedience. What's so bad about expedience? Consider a few lessons from history. In service to expedience, Joseph Stalin placed millions of political prisoners into forced labor camps where he literally worked his ideological opponents to death. In service to expedience, Adolf Hitler inaugurated the Holocaust by eliminating Germany's useless eaters. In service to expedience, tens of millions of innocent people died in Chairman Mao's Great Leap Forward when the communist dictator commandeered the property, tools, and yield of Chinese farmers, which led to unprecedented famine and death. When principles are sacrificed to the greater good, terrible things happen. Peterson shared the following with an Ontario audience. The communists came up with this universal vision of brotherhood and the promise of a better future. That's attractive, even psychologically, because one of the things you are working towards is a better future. And so it's really easy to hook you with a utopian vision because it fits right into your psychology. What's the danger of a utopian vision? To bring in the beatific vision and the dawn of the new utopia, a lot of things had to be sacrificed along the way. And most of those happened to be other people. The Russian revolutionaries were willing to sacrifice everyone, everyone, to their heavenly vision. You have to sacrifice something to obtain what is necessary. If it isn't going to be you who sacrifices yourself, then it's going to be you who sacrifices someone else. The only way for an enlightened society to justify such sacrifices is to besmirch the value of the victims. To dehumanize a fellow being, Peterson writes, to reduce him or her to the status of a parasite, to torture and to slaughter with no consideration of individual innocence or guilt, to make an art form of pain, 
That is wrong. Do you see the connection to abortion? Is it mere coincidence that so many abortion advocates refer to unborn children as parasites? Is it an accident that they use the term products of conception rather than baby? This is not the language of tolerance and inclusion. It's the language of dehumanization. Who are we sacrificing today in the service of a utopian vision? Unwanted, unborn children. And if you think it's unreasonable to compare abortion to these historic manifestations of evil, consider the fact that abortion's death toll dwarfs them all. But these aren't real deaths, you insist. They're just fetuses. If that's your argument, then you have already aligned yourself with those who dehumanize the weak and the vulnerable for personal gain. Let us not forget that slavery, too, was anchored on expedience and justified through the dehumanization of a marginalized people group. And though it's hard to imagine anyone of sound mind defending slavery in the West today, abortion is defended with the same basic arguments. The government never forced anyone to own a slave. People were free to choose. If you were morally opposed to slavery, you didn't have to own one. Sound familiar? The Supreme Court, in the Dred Scott decision, ruled that certain human beings should be regarded as property under the law, and then did so again in Roe v. Wade. It may be expedient to dehumanize people who get in your way or have something you want, but it's a wretched and immoral way to live. Pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. How do we do that exactly? Jordan Peterson suggests the following. The quality of the relationship I had with my children, partly because of what they revealed to me as children, did more than pay me for the responsibility that I adopted in choosing to take care of them. And so that was really interesting. You think, well, here's a weird idea. What if the meaning in life that you need to help lift you out of the tragedy is to be found not in rights, in impulsive freedom, let's say, which has been the damn dialogue in our culture for at least four or five generations, as far as I can tell. Maybe we got that wrong. Maybe the fundamental meaning of your life is to be found in responsibility. In many ways, existence is not expedient. It is painful. It is rife with suffering. And it always ends in physical death. This rather harsh assessment has caused some to conclude that existence, despite its promise and potential, isn't worth the price. And yet, and yet, things could be so much worse than they are. For those who forsake meaning and responsibility, things are worse. But the opposite is also true. It is in fact nothing short of a miracle, Peterson writes, that the hierarchical slave-based societies of our ancestors reorganized themselves under the sway of an ethical religious revelation such that the ownership and absolute domination of another person came to be viewed as wrong. Against all odds, slavery went from being culturally accepted and celebrated to being culturally condemned. There is a lesson here, of course. Historic injustices are always propped up by expedience. This was true of slavery, true of the Holocaust, and it's true of abortion today. To pursue what is meaningful is to emphatically reject the expedience of abortion. Rule number eight, tell the truth, or at least don't lie. Roe v. Wade the Supreme Court decision that invalidated all state abortion prohibitions is anchored on the assertion that abortion is a constitutional right. That is not true. In rendering the decision, Justice Harry Blackman claimed that those trained in medicine could not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. That is not true. The attorney for Jane Roe told the court that her client was pregnant because she had been gang raped. That is not true. Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion business in America, says that abortion is the gentle removal of a pregnancy. That is not true. 
Planned Parenthood further states that abortion doesn't increase a woman's risk for breast cancer, depression, or infertility. None of that is true. Legal abortion from start to finish is built on a long, entangled series of lies. Some are big and some are small. Some are public, some are hidden. Some are bald-faced and some are barely detectable. Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who co-founded NARAL before his conscience got the best of him, confessed that lying was an acceptable and useful practice for abortion advocates. To their thinking, it did not compromise the morality of the revolution. The overriding concern, Nathanson wrote, was to get the abortion prohibitions eliminated, and anything within reason that had to be done was permissible. The end, as they say, justifies the means. In large measure, Jordan Peterson's Rule No. 8 is an application of Rule No. 7. To tell the truth when it would be more convenient to tell a lie is to choose meaning over expedience. That is what lies and abortion have in common. Both are deemed more expedient than the alternative, but that is an exceedingly short-sighted calculation. The problem with even a small lie is that it never lies dormant. Neither does abortion. Don't lie about anything, Peterson warns. Lying leads to hell. It was the great and the small lies of the Nazi and communist states that produced the deaths of millions of people. The same could be said of Roe v. Wade. The lies of Roe operate at the macro level, but it is the micro-level lies that fuel each and every abortion. Here are some of them. There's nothing wrong with abortion. It's no big deal. Abortion is my right. I don't have any other choice. Adoption isn't feasible. It's just tissue, a clump of cells. Everything will go back to normal. I'll be fine once it's over. There won't be any long-term consequences. Abortion is safer than childbirth. The prideful, rational mind, Peterson writes, is easily tempted to ignore error and to sweep dirt under the rug. And so is the terrified, irrational mind. Virtually everyone in the world who is facing a crisis pregnancy has already fallen victim to one monumental lie. They thought they could have sex without getting pregnant. They thought sex and pregnancy could be reliably separated. But they can't. Actions have consequences. And as Jordan Peterson frequently asserts, nobody gets away with anything. Ever. He explained it this way in his biblical lecture series. I've never, in all my years as a clinical psychologist, and this is something that really does terrify me, seen anyone ever get away with anything at all, even once. Maybe you disagree, and you think people get away with things all the time. I tell you, I've never seen it. What I see instead is that someone twists the fabric of reality. They do it successfully, because it doesn't snap back at them at that moment. And then, like two years later, something unravels, and they get walloped. You can't twist the fabric of reality without having it snap back. It doesn't work that way. And why would it? People are tempted by the idea that you can get away with things. It's like, yeah, you try. You see how well that works. You get away with nothing, and that is the beginning of wisdom. The attempt to separate sex and pregnancy is an attempt to twist the fabric of reality. When that doesn't work, abortion is brought in to twist the fabric even further. Millions upon millions of innocent human beings have been sacrificed to this reckoning. Does that not have consequences for individuals, for society? Does anyone actually believe that what we reap can be separated from what we sow? Consider a few more testimonies from women who have sought to circumvent fate through abortion. When people say you get over it and you move on, they are lying. Anyone who says they don't feel guilty is lying, or will feel it later. I was in psychological treatment for more than a year and went to church retreats where old women still regret their abortion.
When they tell you at the clinic that this will solve your problem, they lie. That baby is not some theoretical child of the future that you may be considering. That baby is already there, and in order to take care of the problem, you have to kill it. Please, please, think about that. Murder puts your very soul in jeopardy. Don't get an abortion. You will regret it for the rest of your life. I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm saying it because I am living proof. Evil beings around me pressured and coerced me into it. I should not have believed their lies. I should have fought for that baby's life. I'm so sorry. Nothing in this world would ever make me get another abortion. When I was in my 20s, I had three abortions. Yes, three. Why? Because I was selfish, afraid, and I bought into the lie that abortion was simply a procedure that I was entitled to. Never once, prior to any of these abortions that I had at Planned Parenthood, did anyone talk to me about alternatives. Never once did anyone talk with me about what multiple abortions could do to my body. I started using drugs and selling my body to get the money for the drugs after my abortion. I couldn't stand not to be high because the pain and the nightmares of the abortion were so bad. I needed something to numb the pain, so I used drugs and sex. The abortion clinic told me it was a procedure, that the baby was just tissue, that I would go on with my life. That was not true. Don't believe their lies. Everything about the procedure was completely void of life and the lies were manifold. I was not given any counseling or information about other options. I knew nothing about fetal development. I did not know that my baby had a strong heartbeat, eyes, ears, fingerprints, toes, a firm grip, and had probably already experienced a few annoying cases of the hiccups. Abortion didn't help me as I exercised my right to choose at 17 years old. I hurt myself even more, and I knew it instantly. I tried to lie to myself to quell the anguish and guilt, but I couldn't bury the truth forever. Lies beget lies. And instead of making things better, things go from bad to worse. Call it karma, call it whatever you like. Nobody gets away with anything. But there is a pathway forward. There is another option. If you cease to utter falsehoods, Peterson writes, and live according to the dictates of your conscience, you can maintain your nobility even when facing the ultimate threat. If you abide truthfully and courageously by the highest of ideals, you will be provided with more security and strength than will be offered by any short-sighted concentration on your own safety. If that doesn't apply to those facing a crisis pregnancy, it doesn't apply to anyone. You can commit yourself to truth, or you can commit yourself to abortion, but you cannot commit yourself to both. Rule number nine. Assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. If rule seven offers the most straightforward condemnation of abortion, this one might be the most roundabout. I say that because, at first glance, it's a rule devoid of internal substance. It's ideologically neutral. It's the Switzerland of life rules. It refuses to take a side. How then can rule nine offer anything like a definitive condemnation of abortion? To my thinking, it all hinges on the word might. Jordan Peterson isn't arguing that all people have something to teach us or that all positions are equally valid, but he does commend a willingness to listen to all comers with an open mind. In today's political climb, that is an ideological position, and it's one that moves people emphatically away from abortion. There are two things I learned almost immediately as an on-campus anti-abortion activist. This was back in 1999, when I traveled the country with the Center for Bioethical Reform. First, most pro-choice college students had never given serious thought to the issue of abortion or heard a well-articulated condemnation. They were pro-choice by default, which was and is the de facto position at state universities. These are students who have accepted the notion that opposition to abortion is outmoded, but have never put the premise to the test. 
Second, and this one surprised me more, professional abortion advocates were almost entirely unwilling to publicly debate abortion. In those days, the Genocide Awareness Project, which is the photomural exhibit that took me from school to school, spent a week at each university we visited. Part of that visit included a formal on-campus presentation, followed by a Q&A session. During each one, we would invariably hear repetition of the same question, Why don't you have someone presenting the other side? The answer was quite simple. Nobody would. It was virtually impossible to find a pro-choice professor or professional who was willing to participate in a moderated campus debate about abortion. For some, it was an official policy position, rationalized on the assertion that those who oppose abortion are too abhorrent to share a stage with. It would be like fraternizing with a Nazi. Tactically speaking, not debating abortion makes tremendous sense for those who support it. Why jeopardize the status quo? A general ignorance of abortion's inner workings is much better for business. That's because the more someone knows about abortion, the less likely they are to have one, recommend one, or support one as a matter of public policy. Open and honest abortion discussions tend to lead people in the same direction, away from abortion. There's nothing for the abortion industry to gain by debating, and while their unwillingness to engage is ostensibly rooted in moral repugnance, the pragmatic benefits are too obvious to ignore. Misperceptions drive the abortion industry, but they can't be maintained under a microscope. The more vague and abstract abortion remains, the longer its shelf life. When Jordan Peterson argues that we should listen to other people, he's not inferring that we should take their advice or make their position our own. No, he's merely stating that we should entertain the possibility that they're right and we're wrong. It's possible, after all, that they know more about something than we do. But even if it turns out they don't, the mere willingness to hear them out demonstrates a healthy measure of humility, and the willingness to reject their contention, if the reasoning proves false, demonstrates a healthy measure of wisdom and courage. Taking the advice of other people can be a very good thing, but it can also be a very bad thing. It all depends on who you're listening to and what they're saying. In the context of abortion, bad advice can be fatal, and so can unheeded good advice. Consider these post-abortion testimonies from the Abort 73 website. I shouldn't have listened to the baby's dad. I made the wrong choice. Please, ladies, don't have an abortion. I killed my baby, and I will forever regret it. My advice to anyone going through a similar situation, don't listen to them. Have your baby, and love your baby. If I could go back and listen to myself and not him, I would have kept the baby and been the best mom I could be. If you're getting an abortion, make sure it is what you want and no one else, or you'll be like me, losing it every day and always upset. I kept hoping for him to be man enough to tell me to not get an abortion, that he would help out no matter how hard it would have been, but he never did, nor did he even acknowledge my pregnancy. I regret listening to him. I've called an abortion hotline because I feel so alone. I will always live with this guilt. I live with regret every day of my life. I watch people around me having babies, posting photos, and it kills me. My advice is never, ever listen to someone who wants to make a decision for you. I will never love my husband the same again. I have anger deep down inside of me that he could do such a thing, and anger for myself and listening to him. I despise myself for taking the life of an innocent child. Who was I to take my child's life? I wish I would have listened when someone told me not to do it. Having your baby is the only option that you will not regret. I wish I would have listened when someone told me that. You are free to choose, but you are not free of the consequences. He begged me repeatedly for weeks to keep his baby, not only because he wanted a baby, but because he loved me and wanted to be with me, too. I was so stubborn. I wish I would have just listened to him. I am a selfish individual.
Regret is a terrible thing to endure, especially big regret. It can paralyze you. For those in its grip, the regret of having intentionally ended the life of your own unborn child is as big as it gets. It's probably the most common big regret in the world. Sometimes it follows on the heels of bad advice taken, and sometimes on the heels of good advice ignored. But how can you tell in the moment the difference between the two? One way is to simply go back to rules 7 and 8. Is what you're being told true, or is it merely expedient? Is it advice that can be followed with nobility and honor, or is it likely to lead to weakness and shame? These are the questions that must be asked of the counsel we receive from others and the counsel we receive from ourselves. Peterson writes, People think they think, but it's not true. It's mostly self-criticism that passes for thinking. True thinking is rare, just like true listening. Thinking is listening to yourself. It's difficult. To think, you have to be at least two people at the same time. Then you have to let those people disagree. The unwillingness to consider a counter-argument, even when it springs from your own psyche, is a mark of immaturity and folly. It is dangerous to live in an echo chamber where you only ever hear ideas that confirm your personal biases. Your biases might be right, but the only way you'll know for sure is to put them to the test. Too often we simply talk past each other or ignore each other altogether. Don't do that. Learn to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's not that all people have something to teach you, but all people might have something to teach you. So be willing to hear them out. Don't just assume you know everything. Assume you don't. Start at the beginning and leave your prejudice at the door. When you do that with regard to abortion, I'm fairly certain where the exercise will ultimately lead. Rule number 10. Be precise in your speech. Measuring in at a mere five words, Rule 10 is the shortest of the bunch. At face value, we might call it an extension of Rule 8. Imprecise speech, after all, is a form of deception, which is motivated by one of two things. Either the person speaking doesn't have a sufficient understanding of the subject matter and wants to hide that fact, or else the speaker does have a sufficient understanding, but fears the consequences of articulating it. Casual supporters of abortion are in the first camp. Those who sell abortion are in the second. If we circle back to Planned Parenthood's description of abortion, we'll find a real-world example of imprecise speech and action. They state on their website that surgical abortion uses gentle suction to remove the pregnancy from your uterus. This is as vague and imprecise a description of abortion as you're likely to find anywhere and it comes from the largest abortion business in America. I screenshot it from time to time because it blows my mind that they actually leave it up there for all the world to see. I guess there's something to say for friends in high places. Does Planned Parenthood really not know that pregnancy is the term used to describe the period from conception to birth, and not the thing that is vacuumed from the mother's uterus? Of course they know. It's their business to know. But they employ this preposterous confusion of terms so that abortion can remain in obscurity in the minds of their prospective clients. I might have a shred of respect for Planned Parenthood if they owned up to what they're doing and made a straightforward case for why they believe the deaths of human embryos and fetuses are morally justified. But they continue to double down on this elaborate charade in which abortion is a perfectly benign and harmless procedure. What does Planned Parenthood do with the massive body of evidence that calls the legitimacy of abortion into question? They simply pretend it doesn't exist. Move along, move along, nothing to see here. I should note at this point that when Jordan Peterson prescribes speaking with precision, his precise application is not immediately apparent. In other words, there is more to Rule 10 than its five words let on. Yes, it has value in the broadest sense, but the specific speech Peterson has in view is that which connects to the formulation of your life's ambition. 
Be precise in your aim would be another way of rendering Rule 10. Don't get mired in the fog of unarticulated goals or frustrations. Peterson notes our tendency to scoff at Jesus' claim, ask and you will receive. But putting your desires into words and articulating them as specifically as you possibly can is the first step to actually seeing those desires realized. Peterson writes, When things break down, what has been ignored rushes in. When things are no longer specified with precision, the walls crumble and chaos makes its presence known. When we've been careless and let things slide, what we have refused to attend to gathers itself up, adopts a serpentine form, and strikes, often at the worst possible moment. It is then that we see what focused intent, precision of aim, and careful attention protects us from. The world is too big and dangerous to wander through without aim. Our eyes aid us on this front by filtering out all that does not immediately concern us. This keeps our visual circuits from overloading and makes what would otherwise be an impossibly complex world one that we can actually navigate. Peterson recommends we take a similar approach with our metaphorical eyes. When we look at the world, we perceive only what is enough for our plans and actions to work and for us to get by. What we inhabit then is this enough. That is a radical, functional, unconscious simplification of the world, and it's almost impossible for us not to mistake it for the world itself. But the objects we see are not simply there in the world for our simple direct perceiving. They exist in a complex, multidimensional relationship to one another, not as self-evidently separate, bounded, independent objects. We perceive not them, but their functional utility, and in so doing we make them sufficiently simple for sufficient understanding. It is for this reason that we must be precise in our aim. Absent that, we drown in the complexity of the world. There is utility in reducing the world to bare essentials, but there is also danger. What if a key piece of information is inadvertently or intentionally left out? This has direct application to the issue of abortion. The risk in perceiving only what is enough for our plans and actions to work is that it might incentivize turning a blind eye to that which should be pricking our conscience. When an abortion clinic tells a woman, we'll take care of this for you, that may be true, but it's imprecise, and the devil is in the details, especially when it comes to abortion. Our radical oversimplification of the world makes it possible for us to survive and function, but it can also blind us. The system only works so long as all necessary information is obtained and accounted for. Planned Parenthood is leaving crucial information off the table. They are not being precise in their explanation of what abortion is and does. Human development begins at fertilization. This is an unequivocal fact of biology. Everyone contemplating abortion should be told this. Abortion chemically or surgically kills a tiny human being without their consent. Everyone contemplating abortion should be told this. Abortion is legal, so its perpetrators will not be prosecuted for homicide, but it is a real and permanent death. Everyone contemplating abortion should be told this. Why doesn't Planned Parenthood make any of these disclosures part of their pre-abortion counseling? Their then-president told Ms. Magazine in 1997 that, quote, everyone already knows that abortion is killing, end quote. The pretense that abortion is not killing, she continued, is a signal of our ambivalence. It seems then that by operating on the premise that everyone already knows abortion is killing, Planned Parenthood feels justified in helping people maintain their ambivalence by pretending that it doesn't. Abortion could not survive in civilized society were it not for imprecise speech. Describing abortion in vague and sanitized terms, as the entire industry does, allows someone to choose abortion for its utility without having to count its moral cost. It's a sort of deal with the devil. The future is sacrificed to the present. The dragon is temporarily put off. But it will come back with far more strength and fury. 
If you have to fight a dragon, Peterson opined in a 2017 lecture, you should go to its lair before it comes to your village. This metaphorical dragon might still destroy you, but your chances for survival are way better when you confront it early and on your own terms. Confront the chaos of being, Peterson encourages. Take aim against a sea of troubles, specify your destination, and chart your course. This is his prescription for restoring order. When things fall apart and chaos reemerges, we can give structure to it and reestablish order through our speech. If we speak carefully and precisely, we can sort things out and put them in their proper place and set a new goal and navigate to it, often communally if we negotiate, if we reach consensus. If we speak carelessly and imprecisely, however, things remain vague. The destination remains unproclaimed. The fog of uncertainty does not lift, and there is no negotiating through the world. Abortion leaves the fog of an unexamined and unarticulated life intact. That's where abortion thrives. Like the crisis pregnancy that preceded it, it is a manifestation of carelessness and imprecision. And though leaving the fog intact might seem preferable in the moment, it is a horrible long-term strategy. It can only hide the dragon. It cannot destroy it. Precision may leave the tragedy intact, as Peterson points out, but it chases away the ghouls and the demons. More significantly, facing things head-on, with precision, actually makes the tragedy manageable and prevents it from growing larger in the shadows. Anyone who wants to be precise in their speech and precise in their aim should reject the moral fog that leads to and results from abortion. Rule number 11. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. There are lots of reasons why parents and municipalities frown upon skateboarding. It's dangerous, it's countercultural, it's a public nuisance, and it creates all sorts of liability issues. But Jordan Peterson isn't buying any of that. More precisely, he doesn't regard any of these reasons as providing a sufficient rationale for trying to shut skateboarding down or squelch its irreverent, boundary-pushing soul. Here's why. Kids need to go out and push themselves against danger, because that's what life is, pushing yourself against danger. And when you see kids doing things that are dangerous but spectacular you kind of have a moral obligation to back the hell off and let them experiment with their own mortality because you can't keep them safe. The best thing you can do is make them able and courageous. It's absolutely crucial. And while you can obviously be a fool on a skateboard, the distinction between being a fool and developing yourself is not as clear as people might like to imagine. When kids are out there with no helmet and doing dangerous things, there's a part of me that's very worried about it. But there's another part of me that admires it very much because they're practicing what they need to practice in order to cope with the world. Jordan Peterson believes we do children a great disservice by isolating them from all potential danger, or trying to. It's a fool's errand, of course. Even the most assiduous of parents, Peterson writes, cannot fully protect their children, even if they lock them in the basement safely away from drugs, alcohol, and internet porn. In so doing, the too cautious, too caring parent merely substitutes him or herself for the other terrible problems of life. Rendering kids competent is more important than protecting them, Peterson argues, because competence is actually the surest means of protection. And just to clarify, that doesn't mean making them competent in drugs, alcohol, and pornography. It means giving them the toolkit to navigate the complexities of life. Skateboarding is an exercise in pushing boundaries on multiple levels. For parents, that's a bit terrifying. And while there is certainly a place for rule-keeping, I'm a notorious rule-keeper myself, there is also something to be said for challenging convention. You don't actually want kids who are too compliant. Eventually, road obedience must give way to a more nuanced understanding of when to comply and when to push back. 
We see this in the relationship Jesus had with his earthly parents. Remember the angst he caused Mary and Joseph when his twelve-year-old self stayed behind in Jerusalem without their consent? When his parents found him three days later, they were astonished and not a little put out. Son, why have you treated us so? Mary demanded. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The overly compliant child would never have done that, indicating perhaps that we should be looking to develop something more than mere compliance in the hearts of our children. You've probably heard that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So too are the efforts to ban skateboarding from public spaces and the efforts to spare women from crisis pregnancy through the violence of abortion. This is where Rule 11 intersects with abortion. Actually, there are two connections, but this is the first. One of the primary reasons women choose abortion is because they don't think they can give their child a good enough life. Ostensibly, they're trying to protect their child from coming to a bad end, which is the same thing motivating those who want to ban skateboarding. The problem is, trying to keep children away from everything that might harm them is metaphorically fatal. And trying to protect children from a difficult life by commissioning their premature death is literally fatal. At the end of the day, abortion is a self-fulfilling prophecy. The reason you should allow your children to risk skateboarding is the same reason you should allow them to risk life itself. For children to learn competence, they must be exposed to difficulties. They must learn to overcome challenges. This is why it's so hard for the fabulously wealthy to raise high-character kids. There are no easy no's, nor can they use the we-don't-have-enough-money excuse, which is remarkably useful. The normal incentives for kids to work hard and save money as a means of bettering their life simply don't apply. If you don't think that creates a problem, you've never thought it through or looked at the life trajectory of those who win the lottery. A life without meaningful stakes can unravel very quickly. When it comes to raising kids... Too much and too little are both serious problems. I don't want to undersell the difficulties and dangers of raising a child alone, or the expense. They are real and significant. Jordan Peterson points out that children in father-absent homes are four times as likely to be poor and are far more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. These are real problems. But do they justify preemptively killing fatherless children in the womb? Countless parents abort their children on the explicit assertion that they won't be able to provide them with everything they deserve, not realizing how remarkably resilient children actually are. The primary thing a child deserves is life itself, not the accoutrements. Once you understand the profound value of having to overcome risks and obstacles, you realize how foolish it is to try and spare kids from ever having to encounter them. No one can provide a perfect life for their child, for the simple fact that perfect lives don't exist. One of the consequences of never exposing kids to danger, or giving them the competence to successfully overcome it, is this. They grow up lacking courage. They've never had to confront the chaos of the unknown, or muster the resolve to master it. The easier pathway is rarely the better pathway. It might never be the better pathway. Courage and competence go hand in hand. Little Orphan Annie bemoaned the difficulties of a hard-knock life, but that's actually how we learn and develop. When you fall off the horse, get back up. Nobody wants their kids to be ruled by fear, but that's precisely what so many of today's well-intentioned helicopter parents are instilling. And one of the things that results from this bondage to fear is more abortion. Consider these remarks from women who have had an abortion. I had an abortion when I was 17. I knew it was wrong, and yet I did it anyway, because I was afraid. I was alone and only wanted the nightmare to end. I was too ashamed and afraid to tell my parents. I was afraid to go through the pregnancy alone and be a single mom, especially with no income or stability. 
I was afraid to take on the consequences of my irresponsible acts. I wish I didn't make those appointments. I was shocked, afraid, and all alone. The father didn't want to be involved. I felt like ending the pregnancy was the best thing to do. I was wrong. There are days I truly wish I was dead, all because I was too afraid. I failed my child, who I was supposed to protect and love and keep safe, and I didn't. I was afraid that having another baby at that time would make life way harder than it already was. My boyfriend told me it was up to me, that it was my decision. I wish he hadn't said that. When I was 19, I was pregnant and scared. I thought I was too young to have a baby. I wasn't sure if I was in love, and I was afraid that I wouldn't be a good mother. Adoption was never even offered as a choice. My boyfriend told me I'd ruined his life, and he'd leave me if I kept my baby. I had an abortion even though I didn't want to. I was afraid of losing him. I became depressed, and he left anyway. I hate myself every day for not staying strong. I went in for an abortion. I can remember feeling so unsure and afraid. I asked the lady behind the desk if it was a baby yet, and if it would feel anything. She told me that it wasn't anything yet, and it wouldn't feel anything. She told me my problem would be over in 20 minutes. It has been more than 25 years. I let fear and anxiety take over. I was afraid that I couldn't care for another child. I was afraid another baby would pull me away from my child who had additional needs. I was afraid the anxiety and depression would increase and I wouldn't be able to function at my work or for my kids. I thought I was doing the right thing. One year later, I still regret my decision every day. I wake up sad and I go to sleep sad. I know my life would have been hard with another child, but at least there would also be the joy of another child. Now I have emptiness. The way to overcome adversity is to get your fear behind you, where it's pushing you forward, instead of in front of you where it's stopping you. The way to do this, Peterson argues, is by actually thinking through the consequences of not putting your life together. In the context of crisis pregnancy, abortion is what results when you leave your fear in front of you. But if you put your fear behind you and think about what will become of you and your child if you don't make things better, it has the potential to actually transform you into the person your baby needs you to be. The fundamental reality of life is tragedy and suffering. That's inescapable, Peterson tells us, but that doesn't mean that it makes life unbearable or that it makes being something that shouldn't have existed. Here's something else worth considering. No one in the modern world may without objection express the opinion that existence would be bettered by the absence of Jews, blacks, Muslims, or Englishmen. Why, then, is it virtuous to propose that the planet might be better off if there were fewer people on it? I can't help but see a skeletal, grinning face gleeful at the possibility of the apocalypse, hiding not so very far behind such statements. And why does it so often seem to be the very people standing so visibly against prejudice who so often appear to feel obligated to denounce humanity itself? If you do moment-to-moment -moment comparisons of people who have kids and people who don't have kids, Peterson tells us, people who don't have kids are happier. That doesn't surprise him, though. Of course you're less happy when you have children, he argues, because you have to worry about them. But maybe there's more to life than being happy. Having a child is exceedingly dangerous. It makes you vulnerable in profound ways. It exposes you to unimaginable pain. But abortion doesn't spare you from this. It can't. The die has already been cast. Abortion only spares you the joy and wonder of having a relationship with your one-of-a-kind child. Though parenthood is rife with peril, it also carries some of life's most transcendent meaning. Children are an unparalleled source of both hope and heartache, but the struggle is worth it, and the rewards are plenty. The reason you shouldn't try to protect kids from the dangers of skating by taking away their boards is the same reason you shouldn't try to protect kids from the dangers of being by taking away their lives.
Rule number 12. Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Jordan Peterson begins this chapter talking about dogs, of course, to demonstrate that his admonition is not limited to domestic animals of the feline variety. But even with this categorical expansion, Rule 12 still feels a bit narrow and obscure. To figure out what Peterson is getting at, we might consider what would prevent someone from stopping to pet a cat. So far as I can tell, there are five things. I've listed them in my imagined order of likelihood. I'm too busy to pet a cat. Petting a cat is beneath me. I don't like cats. I'm allergic to cats. I'm scared of cats. I suspect Peterson would be willing to grant an exemption for those who are genuinely allergic to cats, so let's focus instead on the other four reasons. We can boil them down to busyness, pride, indifference, and fear. By isolating the potential reasons for not petting a cat, the purpose of Rule 12 begins to take shape. Stopping to pet a cat has real psychological value, but the rule also serves as a proxy. Think of it as a modern expansion of stop and smell the roses. There is so much suffering in life, so much that can bring you down, that you have to keep your eyes open for those little opportunities for the redemptive elements of being to sort of pop themselves up. That's how Peterson extrapolates Rule 12 on the Rubin Report. Life can be overwhelming, which is why it's so crucial that we don't miss those moments where a little bit of possibility still shines through. Perhaps you've already noticed this, but the underlying reasons for not petting a cat are some of the same underlying reasons for not carrying to term. Here's what they sound like in the context of crisis pregnancy. I'm too busy to have a baby. I'm too ashamed to have a baby. I don't like babies. I'm too scared to have a baby. And while I don't think anyone would say, I can't afford to pet a cat, being too busy is an expression of the same basic sentiment. Since adhering to Rule 12 requires the admission that even the life of a cat has value and is worth adjusting our schedule for, how much more should we be willing to do for an innocent and helpless human baby? Wait a minute, you well might complain. Haven't I gone a bridge too far? Isn't there a huge difference between the effort required to pet a cat and the effort required to birth and bring up a baby? Fair enough, but consider this. The incongruity could also be framed the other way. You have no personal responsibility to care for a random cat you meet on the street, but parents do have a moral and legal responsibility to care for their children. And in the context of our comparison, abortion is not the moral equivalent of simply ignoring a cat that you meet on the street, not by a long shot. Even if you're not going to stop and pet the cat, aren't you at least required to not do it violence? Don't you at least have a responsibility to not inject the cat with chemicals that will induce its demise or subject it to a surgical procedure that will pull its body to pieces? And yet this is exactly what abortion does to an innocent and helpless human being. Peterson makes the following observation during his lecture on the Genesis Flood. In Genesis 9, 1-5, God describes the dominion over the planet that revivified humanity will have, and notes the power that goes along with that, and then puts a limitation on it. The limitation is to maintain the sanctity of life, despite your power. So there's an opportunity, which is that the descendants of Noah can dominate the earth, but there's a moral limitation placed on that, which is, nonetheless, life itself is to be regarded as sanctified and sacred. With great power comes great responsibility. That's the way Uncle Ben put it to young Spider-Man, paraphrasing the back half of Luke 12:48. As stewards of creation, human beings have been given dominion, but it's bounded by an obligation to honor and protect human life. Though there's no indication that Jordan Peterson had the issue of abortion in view when he made the remarks above, the ramifications are undeniable. The sanctity of human life, after all, is the driving moral conviction behind the global effort to abolish abortion.
The world likes to cast stones at the supposed barbarity of the Old Testament ethic, ignoring the fact that its assertion that every human being is made in the divine image and thereby has intrinsic worth has transformed the world entirely. Prior to the emergence of Christianity, Peterson notes, human sacrifice, including that of children, was a common occurrence even in technologically sophisticated societies. Today, we can no longer fathom the public acceptance of human sacrifice as spectator sport, which speaks to the transformative influence of the biblical worldview. Would any of the ancient pagan kings have said with Nelson Mandela that a society's soul is revealed by how it treats its children? or proclaimed with former President Barack Obama that keeping children safe is our first task as a society? Professed commitment to the safety of children is now nearly universal, but you know what they say about talk. Jordan Peterson observed the following in one of his Maps of Meaning lectures. Because I'm an existentialist, I'm operating under the presupposition that you can tell what people believe by watching how they act. I don't care what they say. I don't care what their statements are about their view of reality because the correlation to that and their actual actions is certainly not perfect and sometimes doesn't even exist. Political platitudes make for good sound bites, but policy is more important, and when it comes to the safety of children, policy is not always a friend. Was it really a good thing, Peterson wonders, to so dramatically liberalize the divorce laws in the 1960s? It certainly wasn't a good thing for children. Horror and tear lurk behind the walls provided so wisely by our ancestors, Peterson continues. We tear them down at our peril. And then, of course, there's abortion. The death of a child, Peterson writes, is perhaps the worst of catastrophes. Many relationships fail in its wake. Too many parents in a crisis pregnancy get bogged down thinking, I can't afford to have a baby, instead of realizing, I can't afford to kill a baby. Yes, having a baby is much more expensive monetarily than having an abortion, but the physical, emotional, and spiritual cost of having an abortion is massively, massively higher than allowing your child to live. And the cost extends way beyond the individual parties involved. Peterson observes, A culture that doesn't hold the mother and child as sacred dies, obviously. This relationship has to be held as something that you revere, which at least means you don't kill mothers and children. It at least means that. And that's an instinct. It violates you to do that. And thank God. In large measure, Rule 12 is a mechanism for coping with the tragedies of life. That includes embracing the unexpected moments of connection and joy that life puts in your path. It includes learning to recognize and savor the value of little things, including the cat you pass on the street. I realize that having a baby is not a little thing. It may well be the biggest thing, but there's another sense in which appreciating the little things might also entail learning to appreciate the littlest members of the human community. The quality of relationship you can have with a child, after all, vastly exceeds that which you can have with a cat. It is the limitations of unborn children that are used to justify abortion, but Peterson came to realize that what can be truly loved about a person is inseparable from their limitations. Before birth, the diminutive size and utter dependency of the embryo and fetus are explicitly used to dehumanize them. After birth, these same traits become the basis for guarding newborns so assiduously. The fate of the world, Peterson tells us, rests in each new infant, tiny, fragile, and threatened, but in time capable of uttering the words and doing the deeds that maintain the eternal, delicate balance between chaos and order. Rule 12 is a reminder to look for what's meaningful and soul-satisfying, soul-sustaining, even when you're where you'd rather not be. Crisis pregnancy, by definition, is exactly such a place. So how do you get through it? What do you do after you found a cat to pet? 
Jordan Peterson has publicly berated the movie Frozen, but it strikes me that the second installment at least got this part right. In times of crisis and fear and pending doom, all you can do is the next right thing. Peterson writes, What shall I do in the next dire moment? Focus my attention on the next right move. The flood is coming, and the center cannot hold. When everything has become chaotic and uncertain, all that remains to guide you might be the character you constructed previously by aiming up and concentrating on the moment at hand. He adds the following in an interview with Dave Rubin. When things are going to hell in a handbasket, you've got to shrink your temporal horizon. You can't be planning for three months out if you're on fire. You're planning for the next two seconds. If things are really harsh in your life, if someone is suffering around you and you've got too many problems, you shrink your time frame to the day or the hour or the minute. You shrink the time until you can handle it. There's not any more going on in that tiny fragment of time than you can bear. That's how you adjust to the catastrophe. Not everyone likes cats. That's okay. But if you meet someone who doesn't like children, you should run away from them very rapidly. That's Jordan Peterson's advice. And if you're not going to run away from them, you should at least not sleep with them. That alone would spare us a world of heartache and death. Though I've pushed Peterson's application well beyond where he strictly meant it to go, those committed to doing the next right thing do not abort their children, and those who recognize the intrinsic relational values of felines on the street do not kill helpless human beings in the womb. Thank you for listening to 12 Rules for Protecting Life, An Antidote to Abortion, a text version of this article is available on the Abort 73 website and the Abort 73 substack, including links to all relevant source material. To be notified whenever new content is posted, please subscribe to the free Abort 73 substack or follow us on Apple or Spotify. To make a tax-free donation, visit abort73.com donate.